Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you. And for those of you who are hearing this on Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, sorry, international friends, happy Thanksgiving. Some of you are going to hear this on the weekend, and so happy Thanksgiving weekend. We can still celebrate. We can be thankful all the time. So good stuff. As I often do, a little preview of what is coming up on the show. Later on for our inbox, we have a listener who dislikes online dating. And they go to a mega church, but she doesn't really get a chance to talk to any of the guys there since they're all involved in other ministry stuff and kind of not really in her sphere. And so she's wondering, is it best for her to take initiative and just ask these guys out? Well, I'm going to weigh in on that. And then for our culture segment, we have Dr. Mike Bechtel here. He is back to share about a new book that he's written. You're going to love this title. It's better to bite your tongue than eat your words. So I know you think this doesn't apply to you, but let me just tell you, it probably does. So listen in. And he's going to address conflict and common problems with communication that we have and more. Well, I get for our roundtable the privilege of introducing our friends actually back to the table, Michael, Georgia, and Jesse. Hey, all Hey. How's it going? Good to have you. This is one of those topics. We're going to talk about commitment today. And I'm sorry that y'all were invited um, because basically <laughs> it means that you came to mind with our producer, John, for lack of commitment or something. I don't know. So awesome. take that I as you will. That. So, you know, <laughs> just we, we encourage and exhort here at Boundless, and you never know which one you're going to get and at what time. So, um, but no, this is a great conversation that all of us need to have because I think we're. I, I've said it before here on Boundless of like whether it's that party invite and you're kind of just waiting it out because you don't know your schedule's a train wreck or are people even going to be there that I know, you know, that I even care about? What does this look like? Or maybe someone's asked you to volunteer and you're like, I don't know, I kind of want to sleep in and just whatever. Maybe relational kind of stuff. You know, we've all had those troubles, whether it's been in, in dating or uh, committing even to a friendship in some ways. It's just difficult to kind of draw the line in the sand and say, okay, I am all in. And so um, I kind of want to, when you guys think of commitment, what kind of comes to mind as we kind of launch into the topic today? I would say that the first thing that comes to my mind is loyalty, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, committing to that person with loyalty, um, really putting the effort in to um, commit to them and whatever, you know, whether it's dating or a friendship, committing to them and really being there for them. I think that's definitely a part of commitment. Okay. Yeah, I think sadly my first thought was relationally commitment. I think that word is kind of thrown around a lot with relationships, but I think it was nice that you kind of brought up other things like jobs or volunteering or church involvement, that kind of thing, that commitment doesn't just have to revolve around relationships. Mm-hmm. I agree because that's the first relationships came to my mind first thing but um in a word for just commitment itself i would say devotion Hmm. okay Mm -hmm. yeah good point um i think it is interesting you know and sorry to diss all y'all who are probably i mean you you we probably have gen z here at the table i don't know if one of you are a millennial or treading towards a millennial 
But I'm just going to tell you straight up that when I talk to older generations, I feel like you guys get a super bad rap on the commitment front. I feel like <laughs> young adults, it is assumed, I mean, again, because you just, I mean, Georgia, I think, or I can't remember who first brought it up about the whole job scene. Like, we know that, you know, any uh, millennial and even Gen Z now, uh, any folks in those generations, it is, I think three or four job changes are assumed now. Michael, you should know this. You're in the HR field. Um, within like the first decade, like within your 20s or something, and that's on average, which means that some are changing jobs more often than that. And I feel like there is, you know, we throw out a lot of terms. Maybe you can you can throw out um, FOMO as part of it or as, but, you know, just this idea of like, I want it all. I don't want to miss out. I want to make sure I'm making the right decisions. There's anxiety that plays into it of like, am I doing the right thing? Um, I think it is fascinating when we think of this and how would you guys say, I mean, what's your relationship with commitment on any level as far as are you comfortable with it? Are there some things you're comfortable with, but maybe not on others? Or how have you trained yourself in this area? Like, what does it look like for you to think of being a committer to a person or a thing? That's a great that's a great question, Lisa. Thank you so much for posing that. <laughs> um, I definitely think it just depends on the aspect or area. I do like to think that I am someone who is committed to the work that I'm given, or if I am involved at church, I just signed up to be a part of the interactive nativity. Don't know why, because it's going to be a lot, but I'm super excited. Um, so I Wait, do what think part are you? I'm running it. I'm I'm oh, the okay. I'm like in charge of all of the moving pieces. So. Oh, I was hoping you were going to say you got to be a camel or oh, something. Oh yeah, like it would be super okay. cool if I was Mary or something. But um, <laughs> no, I'm I'm the like the coordinator. But all that to say, I think that's where I'm committed. I do think that there is a certain struggle of man, like when it comes to relationships or if you ever change jobs. I think there's this big thing of like. What if I make the wrong decision or what if they're not the one or what if I take this job and it's not the right job and then I'm in this job and I move this place, all those moving pieces. I think that can be difficult and I do understand why my generation kind of feels that way because there is this aspect of like what if it's not the right thing and nobody wants to feel stuck mm -hmm. in that thing, whether it be a relationship, a job or whatever else. Yeah. Well, you make a good point. And I remember thinking coming out of college, it had been such a, first of all, my whole life had been charted out for me. I'd been kind of told like, well, you're going to school and here's what you're doing. And, but it even felt like in college, there was a lot of fluidity to my schedule and stuff. And mm -hmm. obviously there's summers off. And I remember taking my first job and just bursting into tears because I found <laughs> out I had two weeks of vacation and I was like, well, my life is officially <laughs> over and I will never have friends or do anything fun ever again. Yeah. And I was very very defeatist about it. And clearly God was gracious and I actually made friends and have vacation and whatever, but it is a weird, yeah, a weird spot to be in. I would say that, um, commitment comes with a cost or a risk, um, mm -hmm. most of the time. So I think it's really easy to be afraid of commitment because of those reasons. Um, I mean, whether it's a relationship or a job, I'd say that I still have a hard time sometimes with, with those things when, you know, I, I'm married. So like, obviously I'm able to commit to that, <laughs> but good job. <laughs> so very proud of myself, but uh -huh. before I got married, it was definitely really difficult and I was very afraid of the risk. I was afraid like, Oh, what if it doesn't work out? What if there's all this hurt involved? And so I think that's a big part of it. And a lot of that has to do with overthinking and just, you know, telling yourself the worst story 
Mm -hmm. that could happen. So that's definitely a big part of it. Um, and I would say now that I'm married, there's other things that I have to work on, um, mm -hmm. obviously with jobs and obviously I love my job here at focus on the family, but it's definitely, definitely, um, with other, you know, relationships and friendships. Sometimes I'm just like, well, what's the point? Yeah. So. It's interesting you say that. Cause I think maybe now being on this side of marriage, you know, it's almost like you can breathe a sigh of relief. Cause it's like, oh, okay, you did it. And now you're working on it and whatever but mm, like yeah. did you have on the front end of it when it was still open-ended like did you have breakups or did you have second thoughts like what did that look like yeah definitely um I mean I've gone through a few breakups in my lifetime I've always been very cautious with relationships and so whenever I do go through a breakup or when I did go through one it was very difficult um and so whenever I get came to that point with um my wife Lauren now it's you know, I got really freaked out and I ended up breaking up with her because of it. So, mm -hmm. um, obviously we're married now, so that all worked out, but, mm. um, yeah, it was really difficult for me to, you know, get to the point where I was like, you know what, like if I'm gonna, you know, if I'm going to do this, I have to take in the risk because mm -hmm. there is going to be a risk. Yeah. All right, Jesse, what about you, your relationship to commitment? Um, I think commitment can be frightening sometimes because of the <laughs> <laughs> uncertainty of it all mm -hmm. i mean take the focus christmas choir for instance <laughs> you know they want everyone to join and i'm like okay but you know once for me if i'm in it i'm in it you know i'm going to give it my all but then it's like do i really want to do it or can i even sing you know <laughs> mm -hmm. that's a good point well that's funny you say that because i like when i think of that you saying that i'm like Okay, well, at least that's like a short-lived thing, you know, it, but it is funny how, you know, it's not like they're asking you to sing for the next 20 years, but I think that is a good point of like, you can be like, yeah, I want to do it well. So I think there's an element of quality to it too, as well as right. time commitment and stuff like that. And do I have the chops to do, to, to show up and, and do what I said I would do? I think that's a good point. So... Yeah, that's interesting. All right. Well, what does it look like? I mean, can you build, would you say, a commitment muscle? Like in what ways have you maybe not wanted to commit to something or someone and you felt like you almost had to practice at it or take the plunge and then see, you know, really by by doing it, by choosing to commit. I think it's funny, you know, now that I'm thinking of it, it's like we think like commitment just happens. Like it's so easy or something like, oh, you know, but it, I I really see it as a a practice. It's a muscle that you have to train and flex to be that person that's going to stand up and say, yeah, I'm in, I'm going to commit to that. But what does it look like to you to grow in the ability to commit? I would say the more that you commit, um, you get good results. So I, I would say like, you know, if you're afraid to commit and you don't commit, then you're going to miss out on opportunities. Hmm. Um, that's just the way it's going to be. So if you commit, um, the more the more you commit, then you start to see, okay, that's successful, that's successful. And so your brain starts to see the good things that come from commitment rather than just the bad things. Hmm. So I, th I would say the more you do it, the more you feel comfortable. Yeah. Yeah, I do think you have to take quite literally a plunge sometimes. I do want to preface by saying that you don't want to overcommit because I think that there's this really <laughs> tough line um, – to balance on where you're like, well, I want to be a committer. I want to commit to things. But then if you commit to too many things and it gets really kooky crazy with your schedule. So don't do that. But I do think you need to take a plunge. And I think it does end up having benefits. And I think like a good example for me is like committing to working out, even though I 
hate it. Mm-hmm. I would rather not. <laughs> but committing to like, <laughs> yeah. okay, I'm going to go on a walk at least once a day, and then I'm going to hit the gym three days a week. I'm going to commit to that schedule. I think you do start to see results, and it doesn't always have to be like about the body mindset. It can be just to be about your mental health. Um, but I think that, yeah, when you when you commit to things and you really see those results, whatever those results may be, um, it can work out in the end. Um, I think it's a little harder to take a look at that when it comes to like dating relationships because obviously you're not going to commit to like four different guys. <laughs> um, and you can't just commit three days a week. To yeah, and you can't just be like, okay, well, once a week I can definitely make that work. Um, I think that is a little different and I think you should be a little more wary, maybe not wary, but just be more prayerful about like, am I committing to this because I don't want to be single or am I committing to this because this person makes me better? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And going back to the whole working out illustration, that was pretty cool because um, when you first start out, it can seem terrible <laughs> like pretty horrible yes. like what is happening here you know why do people do this this can't be for fun but when, <laughs> once you uh once you stick with it and you actually start seeing results and you you actually, you, you actually start feeling better it, you realize the the joys that come with it were worth it if that makes any sense mm-hmm. yeah yeah well, I think that brings up a good point, Jesse, because I think that we're so prone to think that the best things out there are the things that come easily to us. Mm-hmm. And we're very assumptive of like just relying on talent. And so we trend towards things that like, okay, well, I'm good at this. That's easy for me. I can just do this, whatever, without a lot of effort. But sometimes some of the best things are hard fought and hard won. And they are things that we decided to stick with um, and saw results. And so, you know, I can think of that even in the, again, in the job realm where, you know, there are going to be bumps in the road in any kind of job you have. And you're going to be like, I don't know if this is super, you know, this was exciting for like the first month I was in this job. Mm -hmm. Now it's getting lame. And now I'm actually getting to know my coworkers and I don't (laughs) like them. And so, you know, you think that the grass is going to be greener and you want to move on. But have you guys seen either in your own life or maybe you have an example of another person that you feel is a great committer and has seen great goals in that? What have you seen as being the fruits of really sticking with something and, and being committed? Honestly, I think my brother is a good example of this. Um, he is in a, a difficult like science degree right now in college, um, and he is really committed to making sure he makes the right grades and really getting connected with different people in um, Norman, which is where he lives, and just trying to find different internships, and he's really committed to that. And I think a lot of times in college, you can overcommit to the point where you're kind of doing everything at like 75%. Mm-hmm. Um, and so or rather you start dropping things. You yeah. Be, you start flaking out. Yeah. Which isn't yeah. Good. And my brother early on in his college career was like, you know, as cool as it is to have all of these college things that people are involved in, which if you're involved in college stuff, that is awesome. But for him, he was like, I would rather make the grades commit to getting to know people in the internship world where I want to work with my dietitian degree and I'm going to do that. And that, and that's what he's committed to. And he does really well in school and he is committed to, I want to be a dietitian. I want to make the world better. I want to, I want people to understand the food that they're putting in their bodies. Um, and that's what he's committed to rather than joining eight different clubs and being a part of this fraternity and this thing. And, and that's just the decision he made and he's committed to it and it's working out for him and it's, it's difficult, but I think in the end, it's really going to work out for him. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
It reminds me of people in my church who have been married forever. And I mean, like, you just assume they were born married because. (laughs) 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 And then they'll explain, you know, they got married early and you're like, oh, no kidding. But um, (laughs) they'll tell you because of that, you know, they had a lot of trials or tribulations or whatever, but they stuck with it. And, you know, you, you get to see how happy they are and their family and not just their kids, but their grandkids and all that. And it's like, and they'll tell you, yeah, it could be tough at times, especially when you first start off. But, um, when you are committed, not just to that person, but to the Lord and you seek him for guidance, um, it makes a world of difference and you can get through it. And it's inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So that kind of begs the question, which I think would be interesting to talk about for a couple minutes, the difference between, cause I see this in, in the relational space and uh, maybe Michael, you can speak to this being our married dude here. Mm-hmm. Um, what, <laughs> the whole idea of like, there are a lot of people that just feel like they have to know they have to get all their ducks in a row before they can commit to a relationship. So mm-hmm. we see that, you know, even back in the olden days um, of the 90s, um, when everyone was all into courtship what? and the I kiss dating goodbye, it was like, <laughs> well, I don't want to even ask this person out unless I'm pretty sure I could mm-hmm. marry them. And they wanted all their list of questions answered and they wanted to know everything about this person. And of course, we know you can't know everything about a person. And hello, once you think you do, they're going to change their mind about it. So whatever. But what's a good balance between getting enough information to know that a commitment is possible while also not obsessing about having a perfect litany of answers to every question you could possibly have? That's a really good question. Um, I would, I would say that's, it's also a difficult question to answer. I Mm -hmm. mean, for me, um, I was definitely, I think I definitely obsessed over all of, you know, the details and trying to get all the ducks in the row. (laughs) Um, It was definitely difficult. I, there was one point in, um, our relationship that I was just like, well, these are all the reasons that like, we might not work out in marriage. Cause like, and everybody always told me like, Oh, if you find one little thing that annoys you, then it's going to be, then that's going to be like 10 times that once you get married. So I was obsessing over that. And I'm just like, <laughs> that's rough. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So yeah, no, it's not, it's not great. And yeah. so that was something that I, somebody had told me once. And so I was just like, Oh my gosh, I'm so obsessed over this. And like, I don't know like what's going on. I remember having a, a conversation with Lauren. And I was like, so this is this, this is that like, you know, I just don't know. And, and then she, and I just like realized so like, you know, I'm like really over obsessing over this. Mm-hmm. And then when I came kind of came back, I started praying about it and really spending time in the word and seeing like what the Bible has to say about relationships and, mm-hmm. you know, about what other um, peers have to say about relationships. And so I just kind of really started to study into that and realized that all of those things, they weren't even something, those weren't things that annoyed me. They were just things that I was like kind of worried about yeah. um, for no reason at all. And then once I got all of the information that I needed and I kind of, you know, step back a little bit. I was like, you know what? Like these are very stupid reasons that I wouldn't want to commit. Yeah. It's, it's overthinking and just being paranoid. You yeah. Know? I see so. that as kind of having been maybe a rough date of, um, Lauren over, over dinner. Here are the 10 <laughs> things about you that I think ultimately may derail our relationship. No, it, <laughs> was, it was mainly with the things about me. Oh, you know, okay. I was very like self-conscious and like, Oh, I just don't think that I'm going to be able to do this for you. And I, okay. I was very much like centered on me and I was just like, yeah, you're perfect. But like, you know, oh, I have all these okay. issues. So, 
Okay. Yeah, no. That's good. Maybe that's maybe that's, that's better sweet. then. I feel no. like I would just pin, like, pin it on the other person. I'd be no. like, here, let's talk about you. It's not me. Yeah, no, it's not me. It's you. I don't know. Any other last thoughts on that that idea, the paradigm of knowing enough to commit but not obsessing? Yeah, I definitely think it just reminds me that the fear of commitment is really just the fear of the unknown. And if you fear the unknown, then life is just going to be really hard because mm. life is living in the unknown um, most of the time. So I think just practicing being in the present um, can be really helpful if you're fearful of commitment. Um, and I, I have an example just because this happened to me where and it worked out God's plan. You know what I mean? But um, a guy I had been like dating with the reason we he didn't want to continue was just because he was like, well, I want to change my career and I don't know if that would work out with you and I. And I was like, okay, well, you know, if you, if, and when you marry someone and you change your career, is it over because you wanted to change your career? Um, and it all worked out like that's totally fine. And I'm not like, I'm not like, Oh no. But I think that was his, his big thing. And to that, I would just say like, Hey, like, Things are going to change when you're dating someone, when you're married to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, if, if your big stopper to, like, wanting to pursue someone is just because you're afraid of, like, how you might change, well, just so you know, you're going to change in relationship. Mm-hmm. That's how it works. Yeah, Good yeah I would agree with that, too. Just um, I definitely had that same exact issue where I was like, oh, well, this is what I want to do for work, so I just don't know. Um, but... Yeah, whenever I really trusted in God and what he had for me, it like he worked every single step of the way out. So there's like no reason to worry about your career or where you're going to live because God's got that. Mm-hmm. Great thought. Yeah, I think trusting in God is crucial um, when you take that leap with anything. I mean, us getting our jobs here, you know, a lot of us uh, didn't grow up in this area. For some of us, we had to come from way cross country it's like do we really want to do that and it's like mm-hmm. lord um okay i'm gonna i'm gonna trust you if this is what you're telling me to do I, i'm gonna commit to it and see what happens mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. that's cool because we know that he is a sure thing yeah. and again and nothing that happens to us is outside of being filtered through his loving hand i love that concept of like there's nothing that can touch us there's no way that we can derail our plan without god saying Okay, you know, that turns okay. That's going to happen. That's mm-hmm. going to be, you know, and it doesn't mean that we're going to make all great decisions and stuff, but it's God is completely sovereign and superintending it all. So that's great comfort. You guys, thank you so much. I appreciate this. This is really encouraging. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Really. Not just a thing up in the sky, a sweet by and by. No, no. Not just a set of pearly gaze of angels with wings. No.
Well, folks, we're here for this week's culture segment with one of our probably self-described top 10 fans, uh, Mike Bechtel, though we are a big fan of his as well. In fact, I was looking, um, Mike, at the past times that we've had you on, and it's getting to be like a little bit of a catalog here. So this is really fun for us. Well, that's a good thing. It is. For me. It's a very good thing. Well, and you just keep writing um, fun books that are very applicable to our, our audience, which we appreciate. So, um, yeah, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Always good to have you. Okay, so um, if you are listening, some of you are going to be listening like uh, we're, we're basically in Thanksgiving weekend here, whether you're listening on radio or the podcast version, if you're listening on time. And we were just talking before we started taping about how we're all anticipating the awkwardness of family conversations, whether you're a young adult who goes home to visit family and you always think that it's just going to be normal. And it's never normal. There's always someone who says something weird or you've got the crazy uncle or there's some divisive issue. (laughs) That comes up. You think there's not, but there always is. And so um, Mike, fortunately, has penned a book that's titled It's Better to Bite Your Tongue Than Eat Your Words, The No Regrets Guide to Better Conversations. Which, interestingly enough, like I'm I'm setting this up like all you do in the book is talk about like horrible conversations and conflict and whatnot, which you do address. But honestly, you're giving great proactive principles for conversations in general and just how to do communication better, which I think is is great. Um, so I want to kind of start out by asking you, Mike, um, you talk about, you know, especially in the book, you're, you're talking about we have so many ways that we communicate nowadays, including weirdly, like the digital spaces we're in, like social media and stuff. Um, what are you seeing, especially uh, you know, where was I recently? I was just uh, somewhere touring somewhere where they had... Um, letters, written letters of like World War II veterans. And I'm like, they're like eight, 10 page letters. And I'm like, that was a lot of effort and intention to go into this letter. Clearly, we don't need that amount of effort and intention anymore. So what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in the way we communicate and some of the problems it's causing? That's great. Great question. Because I think you use the word intention and maybe we don't need to do as much. I think maybe we need to do more Mm -hmm. because we're using social media and different ways of communicating. We're not thinking as hard about what we're trying to say. We just put it out there, especially with social media. There's a lot of talking, but there's not a lot of listening. Mm -hmm. And so we feel there's more of a freedom to say things uh, that you might not say to somebody in the same way in person. Like if we talk to, um, the people we care about in our family, the way we talk on social media, we might not have our family anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it just comes from the skills we learned. We, you know, we learned how to communicate when we were little and whether that was healthy or unhealthy, but it's like those are the tools we have. And then to move into a situation where we those tools don't work as well anymore. Mm-hmm. And so there's more talking, there's less listening. So I think it's impacted the intention where we we don't go into conversations as intentional as we used to to be able to really stop and think about our words Mm -hmm. and what we're saying and how we're saying it and the impact it has yeah it seems like social media and some of these other online platforms have caused us to be very um impressed by ourselves like we'll say something 
And we think, I mean, I know people who have crafted posts and they're just like, that's pretty amazing. And then they put it out, you know, and it's like, I always say, if you've written a post and you have tagged it with hashtag boom or hashtag mic drop, you probably (laughs) shouldn't be posting this um, in the sense of we're so busy trying to make a statement and then see how everyone responds, which again plays into, you know, now we're checking to see how many likes have we gotten and whatnot, which is kind of nutty. And I think you you saying that about the whole idea of like, yeah, are we putting thought into what we're saying? You you describe this in the book as or an element of it as us needing to gain more weight in our conversations. Talk a little bit about what you mean by that, because I'm choosing not to be offended <laughs> by that phrase. When we talk about gaining more weight, it's really about adding more value. Mm. It's like people go to their boss and they say, I've been here for two years. You need to give me a raise. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you there's cost of living, but they're not going to give you a raise just because you want it. It's because you're doing something. The more value you add, the more you're going to be worthy of that. So it's like, don't just ask for a raise. Go out and find ways to increase your skills and add more value. Same thing in communication. If I take a ping pong ball and toss it off the roof, you you won't be able to tell where it landed. Do it with a bowling ball, you will. Mm -hmm. And so to build your own skills of communication, we, you know, we take courses in how to do all kinds of different things and in school and in college, but we don't really learn how to have a conversation mm-hmm. and how to communicate in a way that really makes an impact. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what we're talking about is being intentional with our words so we don't just say whatever we're thinking casually. It's like put a little thought behind it so that there's a reason for what I'm saying. Yeah. Even to slow down in conversations so there's a little more space to be able to think, is this the right way to say this? Mm-hmm. Is this going to help this person mm-hmm. the way that it really needs to? So. Okay. So you have to speak directly to the verbal processors here because they are very um, frustrated with what you just said. They're going to say, Mike, um, that is how I get my thoughts together. That is how I figure out. I just have to say it out loud. So in a meeting, I'm just going to start talking. And eventually what I'm trying to say is going to be communicated. <laughs> so maybe what are a couple strategies for those folks who maybe do need to slow down and realize that, yeah, they probably need to think through and sort through a little of what they're saying? Well, they're using their gifts mm-hmm. because I think it goes back, especially the introvert extroverts. Extroverts tend to form their thoughts by saying them out loud. Mm-hmm. So they think by talking. Introverts think before talking. They'll shape th- by themselves, they'll shape their ideas, and then they'll present them. And so in a, in a group setting, it's usually the extroverts that are talking because they are putting it out there, and they're saying what they think because they're, they're coming up with their ideas. But to recognize about half the population is going to be introverts, about half is going to be introverts, somewhere in between, somewhere along a sliding mm-hmm. scale. And introverts so, and extroverts. Yeah, yeah, and so there's people that aren't going to be able to respond in the same way. Introverts think of a per- perfect response 10 minutes after the conversation's over. Mm-hmm. And so to realize if I want to have impact, just what I'm, the, my way of doing it probably isn't working. The old definition of insanity, mm-hmm. doing the same thing <laughs> over and over again and expecting the different results. Well, if this is what I'm doing, is it having the impact I want it to? Are people being impacted? Are they listening? Are they coming up with ideas? Are they really understanding? Am I challenging in -hmm. the right way? So realizing if I could take a little bit of time to learn the skills of being intentional, Mm -hmm. and those are skills that can be learned, get new tools 
how can I communicate in a way that will really reach other people? Because I think people are just starved to be listened to. Mm -hmm. And when you come across that way, it's like I'm talking, I'm putting out information, but there's not the dialogue that goes with it. Yeah. Well, one of the tools that you really walk through in the book, and again, it's it's better to bite your tongue than eat your words, is the value of silence. And I think very rarely do we talk about that in kind of saying like sometimes, well, I mean, the Bible talks about it. Hello. We know that, you know, even a fool can be thought wise if he keeps his mouth shut. I mean, we know that from Proverbs. So let's talk a little bit about silence, because I think, again, especially for young adults who are listening, they feel like to be heard, to have a place at the table, to get their ideas out there, if they're going to climb, you know, the ladder in their company or wherever they are, well, I better start saying stuff. I can't just be the silent person who gets passed over or, or overlooked, you know, in, in whatever's going on. The the chatty people seem to um, always win. So what's your encouragement to them or maybe some strategies for using silence appropriately? No, I think that's that's very common in there because a lot of times when you have the chatty people that are saying things, they get heard. If I put any silence, if I stop for a second and pause while I'm talking, the the chatty people are going to jump in. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not done. I'm just thinking a little bit. So how do we, how do we do that? But to be able to, um, one of the things that probably is the most valuable for somebody in that situation is say, I always, I have to be speaking. I have to get my words out there, even if I don't have them shaped yet. I got to say something. A much better way to do that is to learn to ask questions, Mm -hmm. especially like on a virtual call Mm -hmm. or something else, because otherwise I'm scrambling thinking I got to say something so I'm visible. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard to be visible doing that. But if I can bring up a key question, say, okay, so what is the client going to think about this after what everybody else has said? Mm -hmm. All I do is drop out the question. Now, I didn't add anything new, but I brought up something that will get people thinking. Mm-hmm. And I've learned that if I can ask one thoughtful question in a discussion, people see me as the person who brings in thoughtful questions. Mm-hmm. So now I've, I've become visible, yeah. not because I talk so much, but because I'm bringing in some value that nobody else did. Mm-hmm. And so that's asking the right questions is a really good way to come in there. Yeah, that's really good. And also, I would say as a caveat, as someone who... Um, has managed people for many years and stuff. When you're asking questions, and I'm sure Mike was probably implying this, um, don't be like the naysayer question asker. No one wants you to be chiming in with all the ways something isn't going to work or you're like mm-hmm. you're in a call with like the VP of your division and all you're doing is saying, well, what about how do you think that's going to work? Or why do you think that, you know, probably not the best tactic, but curious questions and good like detail and drilling down questions. I think that's a great way to to make that happen. Well, they have to be honest questions. Yeah. It can't yeah. be manipulative <laughs> and put the out list there. of five questions that work in every situation. Right. So. Yeah. No, good point there. So, well, let's talk a little bit about um, questions in that sense, because I think this is something I want to I want to talk about both asking questions and then the whole concept of being an active listener. This is something um, I went through some management training uh, in the past year and a half, and probably this was the biggest takeaway for me because shocker, um, I tend to be a talker. And it's not even that I'm like a chatty Kathy of just like, oh, I just want to ramble on. But I'm very much that person who kind of, Mike, feels like I'm anticipating what someone is going to say. 
And then I just, but they're not saying it fast enough. So then I just want to complete their sentence and their whole thought and be like, let's just make this efficient and I'll just finish your whole point. And it's just horrible. And so for me to force myself to listen and maybe ask a follow-up question is such a good exercise for me to not assume that I know where they're going with this or whatever. But what would you say? Let's start with the question aspect of that. Like, what are some valuable ways for a person to have a little arsenal of questions that might be good in a in a conversation or a way of even coming up with some to draw someone out? Well, I think if it's especially if it's someone that you don't know and it's like, how do you start conversations? Where do you go with it? It is good to have some basic questions. Um around common ground. Mm -hmm. So what are we experiencing that we could talk about that that has to do with both of us? For mm -hmm. instance, you and I are sitting in a studio right now. There's people in the next room in the broadcast area. And mm -hmm. so there's things here that we could have a discussion about because they're common to both of us. It's always a really good place to start. What's the common ground of the situation? But then to be able to feel like I don't have to have a lot of topics most people think if I'm going to be a good conversationalist, I've got to have a list of questions that I can go through and I have to know a lot of stuff about a lot of stuff so that um, I, I always have more stuff to do. Mm -hmm. But if I ask questions, if I can ask an open-ended question, mm -hmm. not something that can be answered yes or no, mm -hmm. but just something to explore a little bit, let them answer and then ask a second follow-up question based on what they just said. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what they were going to say, but when they say it, to be able to say some version of tell me more mm -hmm. just and that could be done in so many different ways but well okay well what you just said about this tell me more about this part okay mm -hmm. number one it showed them you were listening which builds trust and it also gives you new things to talk about so mm -hmm. now they're all you're doing is asking a question and then you can have a conversation around that when it's time to keep moving ask another open-ended question, maybe based on what was happening there. It just makes it so much easier. I don't have to have a lot of stuff to say. I just need to be curious. I think curiosity is one of the best resources we can develop, and it can be developed, mm -hmm. to become a good conversationalist. Mm -hmm. um, it's like when you talk to somebody, they do all the talking, and then you didn't say anything, and they go away just talking about what a good conversationalist you were. Well, just because you were listening, you were involved. But I yeah. think we're building trust in relationships. That's where things happen. Yeah. Well, and I like the example you gave of it being you're you're allowing by the type of question you ask for them to win in their response. Yeah. You're not asking something that there is a definitive answer for or you're expecting a certain answer. It really is, you know, that's why like, well, what do you think about that is such a great one because it leaves it open for them to kind of go where they want instead of being like, well, you better have the right answer for this. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm going to be upset by that or something. So, um, okay. Well, I also want to talk about another thing you um, you mentioned is certainly the, the topic of conflict. We have to go there because this is where a lot of people get super freaked out about like, well... I can talk to people as long as it's surfacey or as long as we can just play nice or as long as, you know, there are only a few people that I go deep with. But now this person offended me. And it seems like the common response to that is, well, I'm just going to ignore it, hope it goes away, try to not have this person in my 
my life, which again, when you're talking about like family or coworkers, that's nearly impossible. I mean, yeah, if you get into conflict with someone on a plane, maybe just let it go. You don't have to go in there. But in other circumstances, we definitely have to. So what would you say? I kind of like in the book how you go into like what a confrontation is and how conflict works and stuff. Talk to us, Mike, about how to think of conflict as something that's not a totally negative term. Well, and I think that's a good place to start because um, we usually do. Mm -hmm. When you see the word conflict, right away, it's on the negative side of our ledger mm -hmm. because that's, it, it's, that's it's a bad thing. And you don't like conflict and you feel like, okay, I have to do it because this is important. But I looked up the dictionary definition. It had two parts. The first part was said to meet someone face to face with hostile or argumentative intent. Well, I don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. It's like ignore and just let it go. But the second part of the definition said to face up to or deal with a problem or difficult situation. Mm. So I think it depends on who it is. I'm not going to have the same level of conflict with a barista that I am with, you know, my boss or with a coworker. It's like what's worth that you pick your battles in that way. But also if we avoid conflict, sometimes it keeps going. Mm -hmm. It just gets tucked away and it grows. It smolders underground. And so it's actually getting worse. But if it's somebody that I have a, a close relationship to that I need to deal with it, I can't ignore it. It's like the story I read about uh, a Midwestern farmer who had cows. And in this particular area, they would have clouds that would go over, rain clouds, and it would dump a little mini storm out of that one cloud, just downpour and keep moving. Well, it would rain on the cows. The cows didn't like it, so they would start running. But they would run in the direction of the cloud, and so they don't run very fast. They run about the same speed. So now you've got the cows that are continually getting wet because they didn't stop and just deal with it in the moment. They're staying with the conflict long term. So to be able to, to deal with stuff when it happens is important, I think. Yeah. Well, and it seems that there are probably a few good strategies for addressing conflict in a way. I mean, I think a lot of times we think that addressing it head on means meeting up with someone or, you know, again, using the term confronting, confronting someone and being like, hey, you did this. That was wrong. You're a jerk, you know, <laughs> whatever. When really, I, I mean, because again, I understand we tend to only see our side of the conflict. We think we're right because when are we ever wrong? You know, so we go in only with our lens on. But you gave a couple great examples in the book, I felt, of like some ways to kind of seed a conversation, including um, one of the phrases you used was like, well, help me understand so like asking things that are more like open ended of like and even, you know, one of the ones you said was just, hey, I might I might need to apologize here or let me, you know, and, and help me to understand and help me, you know, maybe we need to get on the same page. That kind of language seems like it would get you a lot further down this track and not be the cow. It depends. <laughs> it depends on who I'm talking to, because having the conversation with somebody and they say something that is really hurtful to be able to respond it's real easy to to fight back if you mm -hmm. if you reach out and start landing punches my tendency is to defend myself or to start punching back but to be able to acknowledge it without the strong emotion that goes with it just to say okay i don't i'm hoping you didn't really mean to say to come across the way you just did mm -hmm. because a lot of times people just say things they're not 
thinking. It just comes out, and that diffuses it sometimes to be able to acknowledge it. But I think from my side, I can't control what you do, but from my side, one of the strongest things I can do is to admit if I was wrong. And to be able to say those three words, I was wrong, mm-hmm. nothing builds trust like that. Because strong people are willing to admit their mistakes. Mm-hmm. Weak people are not. Mm-hmm. And so it, uh, it, it weakens trust when you don't do that. Tell me about it is one of the other ones that's mm-hmm. good. And to be able to say, help me understand um, in any situation, because then you're exploring. Mm-hmm. It's not like social media. You give your position and now I'm going to fight back with mine and then you give yours and we're just talking at each other. Right. But if I say help me understand, it means, okay, I listened enough to be able to hear what you said. I want to know more of what mm-hmm. your position is. Yeah, I don't agree with you right now, but I just want to hear where you're coming, where, you know, what's the background behind this. And when I do that, it builds trust and it slows things down. It softens it because you're listening. Mm-hmm. You just set up a formal listening situation. And whenever you listen, um, it diffuses the the emotion. Mm-hmm. That's good. It reminds me too, that also giving space to have the conversation is also helpful. Because I know I've been in scenarios before where I felt like the person that I was trying to solve something with or address something with was just kind of blowing me off until like, well, I've got some more important things to do and maybe we'll circle back to this. And I'm like, well, that's not cool. So being that person that's just like, when can we put a time on our calendar? It might not be like right here in the hall. Let's just, you know, knock down, drag out right here. But let's put some time on the calendar where we can actually talk this out and create some time and space for that, I feel like would be so helpful. Oh, it's very helpful. Because if nothing else, you have just acknowledged, yes, we need to do something with this. Yeah. We can't, we can't just let it end. Can we explore this more? Mm -hmm. And even to do it over coffee or some neutral environment after the emotion has calmed down a few days Mm -hmm. or something. But yeah, um, yeah, it keeps it from just leaving it there. Right. So Mike, just kind of as we finish here, what would you say if you were to give advice to one of the young adults listening here for some quick, maybe just one or two quick wins that they could implement this week to really see measurable difference in the way they do communication on any of the things we've talked about, what would you recommend? I think one of the biggest ones is to uh, learn to listen. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about it, but... People. I feel like you're just saying that to me because I'm here because I already said that, but that's okay. I'm gonna let it. Go. I'm gonna let it slide. It's because okay. because when you um, when you listen, it's the thing people are starving for the most, mm. which is why they get on social media. It's like if if I am not feeling that anybody's listening to me, I don't feel like I have value. So I need you to listen to me. How do I get you to listen to me? I need to talk. Well, if I talk and I say things and I you don't respond to me, you're still not listening. I need to talk louder. Or I'd need to talk more. And so we get into a talking cycle. But if you just do the simplest things to listen, I don't know of any, anything that changes uh, trust with another person more than just slow down a little bit and just listening. Just say, tell me more. Mm-hmm. Or just ask questions about them, but really care. And I think that ties in with the second one. I'd say, become really curious. Mm-hmm. Just really get curious in a genuine way. Not as a technique, Mm -hmm. but just when you're with somebody else to be able to think, okay, this person knows things I don't. Mm -hmm. They've had experiences. I just want to learn. I read a little booklet years ago my dad had. It was called How to Get a College Education Every Six Months. (laughs) And it said Mm -hmm. the whole idea is every person that you meet has experiences that you don't. 
Hmm. If you can just find out what those are, you'll get as much as you get in a college education Mm -hmm. because you're learning real life stuff from real people. That's good. Yeah, I remember one thing I learned, and again, you know, it's almost embarrassing to say, oh, I had to learn this, but to be such an active listener in conversations that then in the future, whether it's, you know, the following week or a few weeks down the road, you can follow up on that yes. conversation and ask about, I mean, I I can't tell you how much of a win it seems when someone says to me like, wow, good memory, or thanks for asking or circling back. I mean, it does. It just shows you were listening. It shows that you care, and it shows that that person it has a measurable influence in your life because you're thinking about that. And that's a great way to be like, yeah, you're in my sphere and I want to keep up on you and what's going on. And the reason it's so powerful is it doesn't happen. Yeah. If you, if you do that, it's going to be rare for them. So Mm -hmm. it will stand out. Yeah, for sure. Well, folks, um, the book is, it's better to bite your tongue than eat your words. The no regrets guide to better conversations. And um, we've been talking with Dr. Mike Bechtel here, who always gives us great insight on interpersonal relationships and how to go after them, how to do that better in honoring people. Um, This book we're going to make available to you this week here for a gift of any amount to Boundless. So if you hop over to boundless.org, you can search for 773 and uh, you'll see the book cover there. Just click on it. You give a gift to Boundless, literally whatever works for you. Some of you guys give regularly and consistently. That is super awesome. Maybe you're just someone who has a little extra this month and you want to get a copy of this book. We will send a copy of it to you as our thank you to you. So make sure that you do that. So Mike, again, thank you so much for being part of this. You're welcome. It's a privilege. I want to go back to Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me for the Bible tells me so I wanna go back to this little life gonna let it shine gonna let it shine Right, everyone, we are finishing out the show as we finish out this Thanksgiving episode, and uh, we appreciate you all. We are thankful for you. I want to make sure I say that. And uh, as we head into this question, I'm going to answer today's question, and so let me read it for you. Our listener says, I really don't enjoy online dating, and there are a few solid Christian guys in my church. I go to a mega church, and I'm not in contact with them since they're very involved in different ministries. So what are your thoughts on if a girl like myself took initiative in asking guys out for coffee first? Is that too forward? Okay, well, great question. And I can see, I mean, I talked to so many women who are like frustrated, like feeling like their hands are tied in the whole dating sphere of like, okay, so I'm online, exactly as you said, and they feel like, you know, well, I'm doing something, but why does it feel like it's not enough? So great point, great question, and I feel your pain. It can it can be hard. So to answer your question, basically the short answer is, 
it's not necessarily bad to ask a guy to coffee. I mean, there's no, you know, you can't look in the Bible where it says thou shalt not, ladies, ask men to coffee. Okay, so don't stress about that. I think sometimes we get a little bit too weirded out about gender roles in that sense. Um, But I think you need to realize, I think women kind of want their cake and eat it too, in the sense of if you ask him out or you ask a bunch of guys out and they're just like, uh, no, you have to be willing to admit that you might have just burned that bridge. (laughs) Okay, so you're going to put yourself out there. You're going to get the answer that you're saying you want to get. And in some ways, that's very freeing because you're going to have an answer and that, you know, you're going to have a clear direction as to where that's going. But it can also be frustrating and it can also make you feel like you just took a risk and you didn't get any benefit from it. So I would say proceed with caution and think about it. Like, first of all, there are maybe a few other things that you could solve first. Namely, you mentioned that these guys are involved in different ministries. Well, does that mean that they're entirely out of your sphere or you can't have a conversation with them or you can't find them or you can't put yourself in their sphere? I mean, are these other ministries things that you could be involved in? I mean, again, I think that for women, the first line of defense is being open, interested, friendly, to show kindness to not, you know, I can't even tell you how many times I've talked on this show about like, ladies, don't just travel in your packs and expect guys to break through those. But at the same time, prayerfully considering how can I be that person to start conversations, to be in the sphere with other men, to serve alongside them, and to be just that person who's communicating to others, yeah, I'm willing to get asked out. And I would love to be asked out by some of the guys in my church. Uh, Sometimes we think we're kind of communicating that vibe, but it's just not explicit enough. And so we kind of have to put the word out there. So all that to say, um, if you feel like you want to ask a guy to coffee um, and you feel like you're bold enough to do that and you can do that in a way that doesn't come across as desperate or, or weird, I would say go for it, you know, but you have to be prepared. I mean, this is like what guys have to deal with. You know, we, we kind of underplay how difficult this is for guys that is the point of doing the ask is you're putting your cards on the table. You're taking the risk. You're the one that's going to get an answer and you have to be, and it could be if a guy says no, that he may circle back around at some point and be like, well, actually I do want to go out with her, but he also may say, nope, I'm not interested. And so you're going to have to be okay with that information and choose to move on. And so if you're okay with uh, that kind of directness, then that might be something you want to do. If you're more comfortable with the ambiguity and looking looking at it from some different angles and and be willing to uh, wait it out, then that might be the decision for you. Um, One other little caveat I want to say, which I've said on the show many other times, is that uh, a lot of women want to ask a guy out because they feel like I just need to make something happen. But then they accuse that guy later on of being passive and basically blaming him for not asking them out in the first place. And I'm like, ladies, if you're going to like go and be all assertive and dating and then you think you're going to marry a guy and turn around and think he's going to be super directive and leadershipy and all this kind of like very bold and forward he doesn't just flip on a dime like that. So, you know, don't be the one that wants to take the reins on the front end and then think that you're just going to sit back and all of a sudden he's going to become super leader on the back end. So again, initiative is one thing. I'm all for it. Um, But also, you know, just be prayerful, be patient and see what God does in the process. And so both, uh, both bits of advice there for you to consider.
All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week's show. Uh, Again, happy Thanksgiving to all of our American friends. Happy belated Thanksgiving to our Canadian friends. And just, uh, hey, we're thankful for all of you here at Boundless. I want to tell you that we are looking for your Christmas cards. You may have seen us put something out on social or maybe you got our e-newsletter, but it's Christmas card time, y'all. And so this is the time for you to send us a Christmas card at Boundless. Tell us about your year. And if you do, we are going to pray you by name into the new year. So write your card, send it to us at Boundless 8605 Explorer Drive in Colorado Springs, Colorado with a zip of 80920. And we would love to get your card. We'll put it up on our board. We will pray for you and we would just love to see what's up with the Boundless family um, heading into the new year. So uh, in the meantime, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of Boundless.org. Focus on the family. 